0: Right before the Christmas season of 2022, I recorded a discussion with Dr. Michael Jones, a board-certified obesity medicine physician who practices in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, here's a fact. Every church in America is full of overweight people in the pulpits and the pews. Well, Dr. Jones joins me on this podcast to discuss how this came to be, why this is not a good thing and what churches can do to help people become healthy. All of this on this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation. Welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am delighted today to be talking to Dr. Michael Jones to follow up a discussion I had with Dr. Robert Fawcett, a pastor in South Alabama on obesity and the church and obesity and Christianity. Uh, This is something I've become passionate about, and I've invited a specialist on the Anthony Bradley show to help us talk about this really important issue. Dr. Michael Jones is board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine. After earning his medical degree from Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences, he received additional training through an internship in pediatrics at the at Medical Center and a residency in family medicine at St. Louis University School of Medicine. His bio knows that he loves caring for the Lynchburg community. That's Lynchburg, Virginia, where he practices, because even though he's, he's also a transplant, it's become home for him and he very, very much wants to see his neighbors happy and healthy. Uh, when he's not providing care at the Heart and Vascular Institute, he spends, he likes to spend time reading, hanging out with his family and writing his indoor trainer. Uh, Dr. Michael Jones, welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by just reminding people of the crisis uh, that we're in. I want to read some statistics on obesity in the country. Uh, This is recent data from the CDC. The most recent data shows that the U.S. obesity prevalence rate was 41.9% and that is as of March of 2020. From 1999 to 2000 through 2017 to 2020, U.S. obesity prevalence increased from 30.5% to 41.9%. During the same time, the prevalence of severe obesity increased from 4.7% to 9.2%. Obesity-related conditions include heart disease, stroke, Uh, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer. These are among the leading causes of preventable premature death. And potentially more alarming are some of the data that we find around the increase in childhood obesity. The data regarding children ages and adolescents ages to 19 include the following. Uh, The prevalence of obesity was 19.7% as of 2020 and affected about 14.7 million children and adolescents. Obesity prevalence was 12.7% among two to five-year-olds, 20.7% among six to 11-year-olds, and 22.2% among 12 to 19-year-olds. Childhood obesity is more common among certain populations. And of course, we see this in certain populations, especially low income communities of color across the country. According to the data, obesity, prevalence was 26.2% among Hispanic children, 24.8% among non-Hispanic black children, 16.6% non-Hispanic white children, and 9.9% among non-Hispanic Asian children. Obesity related conditions, include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, breathing problems such as asthma and sleep apnea and joint problems. So in this country, we have a massive problem. We are massively overweight. And if you look at the data for our children, as our children age, they also get more overweight. And so one of the questions I'd like to just sort of start with you, Dr. Jones, is why did you end up in this practice of medicine? What, what drew you to caring about obesity as a subspecialty?
1: There were several things that kind of came together over time, ended up having that effect on me. One is I have obesity and I was practicing family medicine in Kentucky and a very large number of patients. I mean, you read some of the statistics about uh, 40%. Well, the most recent data I've seen uh, since those statistics were at about 43.2%. If you count overweight as it's defined by BMI criteria, above 25 BMI, we're looking at about 73% of the U.S. population is affected. And if you go into a primary care practice, you get a little bit of selection bias there. So you're not going to get an average swath of the community. You're going to get people who require more health care. So I would say my practice when I was doing primary care several years ago was probably a good 80% of my practice, maybe more, was had obesity by a BMI definition. And I qualify that as by a BMI definition, because I think that's going to go away before long and, and it kind of needs to. It's a good measuring tool. It's cheap, it's reproducible, but I think it's inadequate for, to explain the disease. But that's kind of what we're working with right now. So in that practice, you're dealing with the whole spectrum of healthcare issues in primary care. And a large number of those things, I really began feeling relatively impotent to help people because we're being sabotaged by this chronic disease. We're really trying hard to help somebody control their diabetes, but obesity is lying under that and in large measure causing it. It's like giving somebody a aspirin for their fever instead of an antibiotic we're not addressing the issue. Other things, you know, high blood pressure, fatty liver disease, which by the way, obesity has now become the number one cause for the need for liver transplantation. Fatty liver disease is has skyrocketed as has obesity. And also in your statistics, while they are correct, it's actually worse than the statistics sound because over the past 20 years, not only has the total percentage of people with obesity increased by number, the severity within obesity has increased dramatically. So while we're saying 43% of people have obesity, a much larger percent are now class two obesity, class three obesity than, than were before. So not only is causing numerous health conditions, we've numbered now easily over 200 specific health conditions that obesity causes or aggravates. We know of 13, and in one study I saw an estimate of 14, but 13 cancers that are caused by or related to obesity. And some of those are the most common cancers we see, enough to where 40% of all adult cancers diagnosed in the United States are obesity-related cancers. So it's not just a mobility issue, although it is that. It's not just a metabolic diabetic issue, although it certainly is that. It is, I mean, we're talking about uh, cancer and I'll ask groups that I'm talking to, what's the most common surgery in people with obesity? Or some people will say bariatric surgery, knee replacement. So we're seeing a lot of joint issues. And so all these people are coming into their primary care doctor. And I really got to feeling like I work every day in healthcare and I don't feel like I'm really putting a dent in a lot of these healthcare issues and my own health. I was 250 pounds at the time and started learning about obesity, which sounds weird. I had this practice that I would once a month, I would take off for a day, which in a private solo practice is a big deal because that's a pretty wafer thin profit margin. And I would take off a day and pick a topic and gather articles throughout the month, go to Starbucks or something, sit down, catch up on something because the field's so broad, you can't stay up on everything. So once a month I would catch up and I passed over obesity three or four times. I remember thinking, you know what? I usually tried to pick my topic based on a patient that came to mind that month that I, you know, I haven't really brushed up on osteoporosis in a while. Maybe I should grab some articles and brush up on that. I kept blowing over obesity even though it is the single most common thing I saw in the practice. So I decided one time, okay, I'm just gonna do it. I hope it's not a waste of eight hours, but I, I don't know what these people are gonna tell me other than that these people just need to stop bending the elbow or they need to you know, less exercise more, which was my you know, standard advice for patients at the time. I was blown away. I spent eight hours in this coffee shop, which wasn't Starbucks this time. I actually did it again the next month and I'd never done that before with a topic. I'm like, how could I be so ignorant of evidence that is not just solid individual studies, but repeated studies, showing the veracity of the claim that this is a disease state we're dealing with? It's not, I'm sure we'll get more into that later. So I'll I'll refrain from going further into that now, but. I started the next day, the cool thing about learning stuff while you're in practice, rather than in school or in residency, is the next day you can go in and start implementing what you're learning. And so I started helping people as best I could with my limited new knowledge at the time, and I started attending conferences, and I started reading more, and I started treating myself, not with medication at the time, but I ended up over time, losing a lot of weight right alongside my patients. It was like we had these boards in the office where when they got a certain percentage of the body weight off, they'd sign their names. So you'd see a bunch of names signed. Well, I'd, I was signing my name on these boards right alongside my patients.
0: So you were actually practicing what you were preaching to them, essentially.
1: Trying to. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just remember thinking to myself, that I'm not sure I'd want to be my patient between 2.30 and 3.30 in the afternoon. I feel I'm a zombie every day. And I remember one of the first things I noticed when I started cleaning up the fuel I was putting in me, I stopped having that crash. And I started feeling better and losing weight and and all that was great. And I was watching people get healthier, but it's really difficult to implement in a busy primary care setting. It just really is because it's a very time-intensive treatment you become a coach. I mean, I practice doctor maybe 20% of the day. The rest of the day, I'm a cheerleader, a coach, a drill sergeant, a, an educator, that kind of thing. So I ended up looking, getting board certified in obesity and going to more conferences and take, sitting for the board exam and, and decided that's just something I wanted to do. And initially it was just so I could incorporate it into my primary care practice. But then I ended up deciding I wanted to do this full time. And I found this opportunity here in Lynchburg, and they recruited me here, and I closed my private practice and moved out here back in late 2017. I've just been doing it full time since then. It's very frustrating and very challenging because it's a very hard condition to deal with, and we have very limited number of tools. But the benefits are fantastic too. We see a lot of people. Just most of the time in primary care, I felt like I was plugging holes, which I'm not saying that's not important. We need to at least plug holes where we can't fix things. But for the first time, I felt like, you know, I'm actually helping people get well, not just slow down their, their diseases.
0: Um, right. You were actually closing the hole as opposed right. to just just plugging it. Right. And I think so much of, of this discussion is I mean, for me, I'm curious as to how the holes develop in the first place. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, if if you look back at the average American, say 19. 45 1950 you didn't have the rates that you see today i'm wondering as a medical professional what are some of the theories about what contributed to the increase that we have today i mean we're much better off than we were you know 70 75 years ago in this country we were more wealthy we have more access to better food opportunities i mean we have all these great things but we're also more obese and more overweight. And I'm wondering how did this happen? I mean, what are, what are some of the theories in terms of why it is that as a country that has improved in so many areas, there's been this correlation between we become more efficient and more obese at the same time. And I'm wondering, yeah. do you have any any thoughts on, on how we got here? What are what some some contributing variables to some of the the data we see today?
1: I mean, you used the word theories and I'm glad you did because, you know, we don't really have one thing that we can point to and it's almost certainly multifactorial. And we seem to, along about the 80s, have hit kind of a perfect storm. Uh, not that there wasn't obesity prior to that, but it really started to blossom after that. And of course, one of my personal opinions is I think it had a little, no small amount to do with adopting the uh, food pyramid. I think that was probably not a great thing, but I'm not going to blame it just on that because I have a, um, a chart, a diagram, I should say on my exam room walls that I was so impressed with. I had it blown up and put on poster board and fixed to the walls in the exam room. That's a, an obesity, obesity system map. And it puts energy balance in the center of the diagram. And it is a ridiculously busy and complex diagram that looks at the different systems, including biology, psychology, environment. There's about 12 different categories, and it shows how all of these have their hand in how a human being goes about obtaining energy, why they obtain it psychologically and otherwise, And what they do with it once it's in them. And I have it there for patients to look at and really begin to just get a visual picture of the complexity of what we're dealing with. So I'll throw a few things out that I think uh, have their hand in it, but I don't think are in themselves the cause of it. The environment. Throughout most of human history, the primary cause of death has been famine and starvation. Some of the foods we eat today that have been staples throughout human history are the perfect foods if you're in a context where the number one killer is famine and starvation. If you have struggle with food scarcity, when you and the perfect food there is a food that will give you energy now pretty quickly and also stimulate storage of fuel for later, because you don't know when the next meal is coming. Foods that fit that bill are simple carbs and sugars, rice, potatoes, things of that nature, breads. I don't think that there are people that are more people on a population basis are genetically predisposed to obesity really any more than in history past, save for the fact we've genetically, we're expressing it more. And genetically passing this on and and environmentally, uh, socially passing this on in our culture. But I think it's always been a possibility. In fact, in some sense, it's a preservation issue. You want your body to be as as efficient as possible in holding on to energy, unless you can call DoorDash at 2.30 in the morning. Then you want your body to be able to selectively waste energy. And 15% of the human population are quite literally immune to obesity. They could sit in front of a TV and eat bonbons all day long and do nothing else. Now, they'd be very unhealthy people generally. They'd have a lot of health conditions. But the one thing they wouldn't have is an excess accumulation of body fat. They wouldn't. They would either lose excess calories through their bowel movements, which we know the brain can in part regulate. And thermogenesis, how much heat somebody produces. Uh, To illustrate that, one of the more common side effects and complaints I get from patients who have lost a lot of weight and kept it off for a period of time is they're cold all the time. Well, why do you think that is? The hypothalamus says, You don't have enough fat. We need this much fat, and you've lost all this. We need to get it back. We don't want to burn energy with you having warmth. (laughs) So you downregulate thermogenesis. We know that in the first year of somebody, losing weight, by the end of that first year on average, their basal metabolic rate will drop by 15%. They didn't develop excess body weight because they had a slow metabolism. They developed a slow metabolism because they lost the excess body weight and it's a a compensatory mechanism. And so when you have part of your body that is working against you, I remember in the, like two thousand five or six, I saw an article that said something about the disease of obesity. and I remember kind of rolling my eyes and saying, "Man, are we going to medicalize everything?" And, and we do tend to do that, but sometimes we do that and it's right. And when you have a dysfunctional or dysregulated part of your body, particularly your brain, that is instigating this you have a disease state, and so built environments. That's another area that I think is different now than than was before. Three generations ago, the vast majority of children walked to school every day. That you didn't have subdivisions. You had neighborhoods and sidewalks, and those sidewalks usually led to a school somewhere. Well, the more spread out we got, subdivisions. Well, you can't have kids walking on the highway to get to school, so you're busing them, and more and more kids have have. It's still expanding the number of kids that have to be bused versus walking to school. And a lot of things like that, time and energy saving things, not saying they are bad things, but they have reduced energy expenditure that if you had somebody 50 years ago eating the same exact way we're eating today, might not result in the same degree of adiposity. Culturally, there's some neat work by a gal at University of Michigan And I'm trying to think of her name. Ashley, maybe it'll come to me. She did her postdoctoral work at Yale. She's a behaviorist, a, a PhD psychologist who her expertise is in eating behaviors and craving and that kind of thing. What makes people eat and when and how and why? I remember going to a breakout session at a conference with her once and she showed some of her work and her evidence. In fact, she's the lead author on the study that developed what we call the Yale Food Addiction Scale. That's a validated study, validated scale. And conclusion that her studies have led her to thus far is that cravings aren't biological. They're not hormonal. They're cultural. And you say, well, wait a minute. My wife, when she gets close to that time in lunch, she craves. How are you telling me that's not hormonal? Well, what they found was there's only 3 of the 70-some languages that they evaluated in one study only 3 of them actually had a word for craving they had love and like and want and desire but nothing that kind of fits the you know craving and all 3 of those were western languages they had a study with first generation americans came over immigrated themselves and on these food questionnaires particularly this craving questionnaire there was no evidence of craving behaviors they did second generation in another study and it was about half and half and by the third generation it was about equivalent to the rest of the american population so we do a lot of things like uh, a woman's pregnant and you're eating for two well here you can have this this a little bit of this won't hurt you and we get injured when we're a kid mom takes you to get ice cream You have to get a shot when you go see your doctor. We'll stop by McDonald's on the way home. And so a lot of that has grown up over the years, too. And I think a lot of these different things have been happening, and we kind of hit this perfect storm, like I said, sometime in the 80s, and it really has exploded.
0: One of the things that I've seen in, in recent years is that we use food in this country to alleviate discomfort. And we do that, particularly. It starts with children, but we do it as adults as well. If you feel sad, if you feel lonely, if you feel deprived, if you feel stressed out. There's some food item that makes you feel better. Actually, I think I think one of the reasons, and correct me if you know if you think I'm wrong here. I think I think one of the reasons we we see childhood obesity spiking is that we basically train our children to use food to alleviate discomfort. And so, of course, by the time they're teenagers and in their early 20s, mid-20s, early 30s, they're obese and overweight because since they were small kids, whenever they feel something that doesn't feel right, there's been a food item to stuff in their mouth, right? A little Debbie cake, a cookie, some sugar-saturated beverage or something like that. And so I, I wonder if we're even give people a chance to not have cravings when we use food as a way to handle discomfort. Is that something that you see in your practice?
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's actually fairly good explanations for why that works. Another interesting study that comes to mind, speaking of that, you know, kind of plugging holes, filling gaps and comforting ourselves with food is one that looked at potential for addiction, addictive behavior of foods. And it turns out, when we eat particularly certain types of foods, simple and processed carbs and refined sugars, the dopamine level in the nucleus accumbens of our brain, that's the reward center, some people call it. I prefer to think of it, it's, it's more of the contentment center. I feel contented. In fact, there's some basis in this in a depression research. A lot of folks with depression have subnormal dopamine levels which is the foundation of at least one of the, or a couple of of the medications that are used for that. But it's subnormal when it is, it breeds discontent, this sensation of discontent. And we want to push that level up a little bit. Well, it turns out when you eat this food, certain foods more than others, chocolate in particular, and there's a reason for that too, it boosts that dopamine level up and it actually lasts about four hours Before it comes back down to where it was and you felt great for a while, need it again. Well, they did a comparison with people with cocaine and the same thing happens. And the PET scans on that part of the brain lit up almost identically. So it gives us some information that I don't think obesity is an addiction disease, but it has a component of addiction. It certainly seems. So yeah, I see that. And it does. I remember an older fella one time uh, who came into my office when I was practicing primary care and he was on a pain medication and I didn't want him on it anymore because he's older and uh, health risks and fall risks and that kind of thing. So I'd taken him off of it and he came back and said, I'm really hurting doc. I, I, I think I need that back. And I talked to him for a while and uh, long story short, his pain wasn't actually very bad. He ended up admitting that. I don't know. I just feel better when I'm on it. I'm like, yeah, but that's not an appropriate way to help you feel bad. Let's just see if we can. And that's kind of what we do with food.
0: Yeah. It's, it's something that I, I learned. I mean, I had to come to turn to this a few years ago. I, for me, it was, it wasn't chocolate it was French fries. And if I had a bad day, a bad week, you know, I was like, I just need to get to Friday. And I am going to have a, a bacon cheeseburger and fries and I'm going to feel great. And that that was a plan right and for years and this is still the case today i mean i know i have to ration myself because and think about it we call it comfort food my go-to comfort food is french fries no ketchup just heavily heavily salted preferably cooked in duck fat that's my preference and i would always always feel great after eating uh, some french fries i want to just kind of run down a couple of food items here and tell me what you, what you think and not just what you think of them, but their, their, their specific contribution to why it's so difficult for people to manage their diets. So let's talk about sugar for just, just a moment. So one of the things I wrote an article about the sugar industry a long time ago, This is probably 15, 20 years ago, and I was just alarmed at how prevalent and pervasive sugar is in the American diet. I mean, it is everywhere. And we use it not just to sweeten things, but we also use it as a preservative. I remember the one day I about fell out of my chair is when I looked on a package of hot dogs and like the third or fourth ingredient was sugar. And I'm thinking, why is sugar in hot dogs? Sugar is, is everywhere. And it's I think it has an addictive capacity to a quality to it. If I was being really cheeky, I would say we probably should declare a narcotic, right? Because it's just so addictive. It's really a, a dangerous thing. Tell us about how sugar affects us and how it works and why it is that sugar might be so difficult for people to to, to give up in terms of managing their diet.
1: Well, aside from it seeming to have that effect of... of uh you know, boosting dopamine levels, making us feel good for a period of time. And I'm sure there are other theories and people who know more about the effects in other areas of the body and particularly the brain of sugar. With regards to what I deal with, we know things that are, you know, simple sugars, mono and disaccharides that I call those the fast burning carbohydrates. Because what a lot of people don't understand is all carbohydrates is sugar. That's what a sugar is. You don't even turn carbohydrates into sugar. It is sugar, just long chains of sugar bound together. Well, the more simple it is, the faster we can absorb it once we've consumed it. The faster you absorb it and jack up your sugar level, and it's, uh, different foods have been estimated at how fast they do that by assigning them a number, The uh, a, glycemic, uh, a glycemic load or glycemic index is used. You drive up your sugar. Well, that stimulates these cells called beta cells in your pancreas to dump out insulin to deal with that high sugar. That's a normal process. It's good. You don't want your sugar level to stay too high. However, what does the insulin do with the sugar when it goes up? I mean, how does it lower your blood sugar? It lowers your blood sugar by shoving that sugar into your fat cells and also muscle cells and liver cells. Shoves the sugar into your fat cells. It also insulin also triggers your body to, to liberate some of the fatty acids from these cells or these lipoproteins that are floating around in your blood. They're called triglyceride rich lipoproteins that have specific names, liberate some of the free fatty acids there. And those get drawn into the cell So then you take this sugar and create glycerol and these fatty acids attached to the glycerol and you get triglycerides, which is the most common storage form of fat. Then there's a third thing that the insulin does relative to the adipocyte, the fat cell. It triggers the downregulation or the inhibition of a hormone in the fat cell called hormone sensitive lipase. That is supposed to take those triglycerides, break them down, dump them out in the bloodstream so you can burn the energy it inhibits that. So, in effect what you have, you take in a bunch of sugar, you get a little bit of a sugar high, a sugar rush, but you know, you also get that dopamine thing. You get increased fat production. Notice it's not eating fats that makes you make and store fat. Now, the fats have to be present, but that's not what triggers it. What triggers the what we call lipogenesis, the production of the fat in the fat cell And the lack of ability to break it down, that's called lipolysis, the lack of ability to to break it down and use it. So what I tell patients, bypassing all that explanation, is that, suffice it to say, insulin is the most potent fat storage hormone in the body. So that's how it's affecting obesity. Now, when you have a culture that progressively more and more and more and more and more sticks sugar in every product you can find, and you... You can't get away from it. You're going to see an increase in people dealing with the symptoms of obesity, which is the excess accumulation of body fat.
0: So, serving your children a tall glass of orange juice and Krispy Kreme donuts and pancakes and waffles with syrup is probably not a great idea. Is this, is, is you saying?
1: I would say that's that's relatively atrocious. Now, am I saying I never eat a Krispy Kreme donut? I'm not saying that. We have to change our relationship with those foods. We don't keep orange juice in the house. Do I never drink it? No, I will occasionally. But I don't want to reach out and be able to grab it. So, right, we got to change the relationship because it's everywhere. And in fact, I try to illustrate this for patients in a somewhat painful way. One, I'll have patients do something. The first two weeks when I start seeing them that I call the carb detox and made it up myself. So it's not, (laughs) but the purpose, and I have a lot of purposes, and I could probably talk for an hour just on that. One of the purposes is I want them to start seeing how difficult it is to get away from sugar, but that it is possible to do, but you can't do it uh, mindlessly. You have to be intentional and purposeful. There's other physiologic and psychological reasons I do it too. I want them to realize that they can do hard things <laughs> for a couple of weeks. I want to take the the sugar that is stored in their liver and force them to break that down and push it out and burn it up so that their metabolism kind of has to shift over to a predominantly fat-burning metabolism because it can't rely on the sugar that the liver makes, by the way, by itself. It's called gluconeogenesis. And so we can actually reduce... The liver's production of sugar uh, in that way, and there's other things we can do about that too. So I, I do that to begin to wean them away. In fact, one of my patients that came back for her second visit yesterday morning, I had a medical student with me in the office, and I asked the patient, she was frustrated. The paperwork she filled up beforehand, I, you know, she written, I asked them how they feel, she's frustrated. Well, she'd worked really hard for two months and she'd lost like 5.6 pounds. She was really upset about that. Despite the fact that I really drone on with new patients about, look, don't worry about the weight, especially early on. We got lots of things to work on. That's the symptom, not the problem. Well, she was frustrated anyway. And so I started drawing that out of her. And finally, just almost as an aside, she said, oh, but you know what? I'm a coffee drinker and I always put a lot of creamers and international delight stuff in it and all this. She said. I'm drinking black coffee, and I now prefer it. If you'd have told me a month ago that I'd be drinking black coffee, I would have told you you were nuts. I see that every day. Taste is learned. We can, it's cultivated. You know, nobody was born craving a cheeseburger. They learn that. If if I'm in Virginia, if I ask 100 people in Virginia, if you like crawdads, I'll get 15 or 20 say they do. But if I go to South Louisiana, 85, 90% of them are going to say they do. And it's learned, and if we can understand that, we can understand that it's possible to eat healthier and actually like it. But there's that learning curve, and that's the hard part.
0: Now, there's also mass confusion about the role of, of carbohydrates, and people. Some, some people say they're they're really bad for you. Some say it doesn't really matter. Some say it, it depends on the type of, of carbohydrate that you consume. Of course, there is a relationship between sugar consumption and high processed carb consumption those would sort of be comorbid in terms of making people a lot worse i'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what carbohydrates are like for us and how we should be thinking about the consumption of those in light of the rest of our diet
1: one of the things i think it's helpful to clear up when i teach med students when I, i give a lecture the other night to some family medicine residents even practicing physicians we don't get a ton of nutrition education. You know, the nutrition education is like maybe one lecture or, you know, we learn why people need vitamins to avoid certain disease states. And so I find it it helpful to help people understand what is a processed carbohydrate? People say that people use the term processed carbohydrate. What does it mean? It doesn't simply mean that, okay, something was done to it between the field and my fridge. It's not simply that carbohydrate, and I wish I had a picture to show you. Carbohydrate, the anatomy is a grain by and large. The anatomy of a grain, the outer part is called the bran. Then you have the large part inside called the endosperm and then you have the germ. The outer part, the bran is almost all fiber. The inner part, the germ has a good bit of fiber in it. Of course, there's some uh, proteins, a little bit of healthy fats in the germ and vitamins and also in the bran. But it's that third part, it's that large part in the center called the endosperm, it is almost completely starch. Why does that make a difference? Well, fiber is bound together. It's long chains of sugar molecules bound together with a type of bond, chemical bond, that human beings can't break apart. We would say can't digest that. You can't break it apart. Well, if you got long chains of sugars with bonds that we can't break through our normal course of digestion, because you're not a cow, cows can do that. That's why they can live off grass then you can't absorb it. You can't get it from your GI tract through the wall into your body, into your cells. So it stays in the bowel and actually is really great for your colon. The fiber is uh, for that reason. It helps bowel motility. The starch, however, has a bond that we can break and we do. A hormone called amylase breaks those bonds down into small component parts. We absorb it to raise, and that's how we get sugar into our bodies from our diet. And that's important too. But when we, the more we process a carbohydrate, whether the manufacturer does it through thermal processing or mechanical processing or um, chemical processing, they're in essence, digesting the carbohydrate for you. You have this big chains of carbohydrates. You break them down, but maybe not all the way into their component sugar parts. And then you box them up in a cereal box or something. And now when you, we eat it, we have to do a little bit of digestive work, expend like a little bit of energy to break it the rest of the way down, but not a lot. And so it absorbs quickly and we shoot that sugar up, like I said, a few minutes ago. Whereas if you go out into the wheat field and just grab a grain of wheat off of a stalk and throw it in your mouth and chew it up, your body's got to work quite a bit to get that from that form into a digestive. So, So you're expending energy just in the process of harvesting that energy from that grain. And then when you do, it takes time. So instead of shooting your sugar up rapidly and pulling your insulin level up with it, you get more of a gradual, gentle increase in your sugar and a gradual, gentle increase in your insulin. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that that works better for us. So I think it's important when we're talking about carbohydrates that people know, one, what one is. Two... What is the difference between that and table sugar? Well, there is a difference, but it's uh, has to do with the number of sugar molecules in a chain. Did I scratch you where you itch there? Is there anything else you want me to?
0: That's great, and I'm wondering you know people want to know you know get get this sort of question right is is eating bread bad? Should we eat pasta? are foods that because we often hear now that if it's in a box, don't eat it is those are sorts of recommendations that you give your your patient to stay away from carbs that have been you know highly processed in a factory where that original grain has been churned over four or five six seven times and made into something that doesn't resemble at all how it originally came about what do you recommend for your patients regarding stuff like that so one of the things i've heard is that if you walk in a grocery store the things along the outer rim of the store, the outer edge of the store, right? The fruits, the veggies, those are the things that are healthy. The stuff that's inside, in the middle of the store, up and down the aisles, so that's what you want to avoid stuff in boxes right. in the feature section. And so there's just a lot of confusion. And I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, some people want to know, well, then does that mean I can't eat any bread or any pasta? Or, or I can
1: generally uh, ask people early on to avoid bread, especially that first two weeks, two week period. Avoid bread, not because you can't ever have it, kind of need to give your body a break. We're trying to let you retrain yourself how to eat. And breads, now not all breads are the same, but the typical bread, you know, brands that we grew up with, the soft, squishy white bread, the reason it's soft and squishy is because it's like 100% endosperm (laughs) that I was talking about. You know, it's, they call that out and make the bread with that. When you see whole grain bread, the difference is it's got all three parts of that grain in the bread. However, if it just says whole grain bread, it can be just 1% of that and the rest, the endosperm. And they call it that. It needs to have a percentage. And we generally recommend if you're going to eat bread, it should be at least 50% whole grain. And if preferably 100% whole grain, but even better sprout bread, like Ezekiel bread, That kind of Dave's killer bread, I think has a a sprouted grain bread. And the reason it is a grain won't sprout if it doesn't have all of its parts, all of its anatomy. So you can be pretty assured that if it's a sprouted grain bread, that it's got all the parts. So you're still getting the starch part, but at least you're slowing down the digestion a little bit, reducing how fast it's pushing your blood sugar up. Even if it's got the same number of carbohydrates per slice as another type of bread. So it's not just the number of carbs, but what's the components of those carbs and how is your body going to utilize it? So yeah, pastas, I ask people to avoid those for the most part, uh, typical pastas, and start working on beginning to enjoy substitutes. Like in our house, we eat a lot of zucchini noodles. We eat a lot of shirataki noodles, spaghetti squash, stuff like that. There are vegetable pastas out there and you got to be careful. Because a lot of those, they're made the same as any other pasta, but about the fifth ingredient down, it'll say something like spinach puree. They put a little bit of that in there, so it turns it green, and we're all happy that we're buying a veggie pasta. So you got to be a label reader. Cereals, generally avoid, if you're going to have them, you want to have the ones that are almost all fiber that most people don't prefer, like you know uh, fiber one or grape nuts or uh,
0: shredded wheat. So I, I can't have a uh, frosted flake. Is that what you're telling me?
1: I generally avoid the frosted flakes. I generally, yeah. <laughs> and it tastes so good though. I mean, it's. It does. The raisin bran. It's yeah. Like, raisin bran is that good for you? Okay. It's got bran. That's about all it's got going for it because it's loaded with sugar on top of the. So you have little flakes of sugar because a grain is sugar sprinkled with sugar and then little bombs of sugar in, in raisins dropped in there.
0: How about Cheerios? I mean, you often see parents feeding babies Cheerios, and they think that if their child eats a bowl of Cheerios without any sugar, that's healthier than their children eating a a bowl of, of, of raisin bran.
1: It might be marginally healthier, but you got to remember, <laughs> the Cheerio is sugar all by itself. It just takes slightly longer to get it into that form once you've swallowed it but not long enough in my view
0: let me ask you about this so i, I want to ask you about about two things and then i want to talk about the way christians eat because one of the things that you basically describe over the last few minutes you basically killed potluck dinners you basically killed the a coffee hour after church and the sorts of i mean the one of the things you've definitely just did a, a death knell to is that the food that we give children and and youth ministry and and children's ministry and stuff like that. So before I, I get to that, I've got two more questions for you. I want to talk about two more things. One is sort of defining what insulin resistance is. I think you described it a little bit earlier, but you hear that phrase a lot. And I want people to, because you often hear that obesity is a consequence of insulin resistance. So I want to get some clarification on that. And then secondly, before we talk about the church, I want to talk about seed oils and the role of, of, of linoleic acid and, and things like that in terms of its proclivities to help people, unfortunately, store fat. So, so first, could you tell us what is insulin resistance and how does that relate to obesity? Insulin
1: resistance, there's been some debate for years of what comes first, insulin resistance or obesity. And the answer is yes. It turns out that insulin resistance promotes fat storage. And excess fat storage to the point where we develop what we call adiposopathy, because there's normal fat, there's normal ways to store fat, normal healthy fat. But at a certain point, and we think this is different person to person, and we don't have a good way to measure it person to person yet, they tip over, and the theory that's been thrown out there about this is called the soggy bath mat theory. It's basically, if everybody, if you envision the amount of body fat particular individual can hold in their body in a safe, metabolically safe way, their bathtub is different size than the person next to them. They might be the same gender, same age, same height. If this person tries to store, if their body tries to store any more fat than that bathtub will hold, of course it spills over and we begin to develop what's called ectopic fat. And that is fat being stored in places it doesn't belong either in fat cells that are already too big or already already full and don't need more or in muscle cells liver cells brain cells pancreas epicardial fat around the heart so those are ectopic fat depositions and what we see when that bathtub overflows is the fat cells themselves begin to turn angry They begin misbehaving, biochemically and metabolically misbehaving, not functioning as they're designed to function. So that milieu, that unhealthy adipose tissue, fat tissue, has the effect of inducing insulin resistance where the insulin receptors on those cells, those fat cells, become less sensitive to the effects of insulin. So remember I said you have blood sugar going up. Insulin is produced in the bloodstream to cause those fat cells to take the sugar out of the bloodstream into the fat cell, thereby lowering the blood sugar level.
0: So what's being resisted? Why do doctors use use that word? Well,
1: because it ends up requiring you to produce more insulin for the same amount of sugar-lowering effect those receptors become less sensitive to the insulin that is its it, uh hormones are like a key and a lock the receptor on a cell is like the lock the key is the in this case the insulin and it fits just right into there and it triggers biochemical reactions to occur across that cell membrane well if you attach them there to the receptors it takes more of those to have the same amount of sugar uptake effect out of the bloodstream. So the insulin resistance is resulting from the excessive abnormally behaving fat, fat cells. But then when you have abnormally behaving fat cells, you produce more insulin, you produce more insulin, you get the effect I said earlier, where it promotes fat storage and reduction of fat breakdown. So Insulin resistance is aggravating obesity, and obesity is aggravating insulin resistance, and you have a nasty cycle. It's hard to stop, but that's another one of the many reasons I do the carb detox with people.
0: What are some of the ways that you, with your patients, help them to manage their insulin resistance? Are there some some strategies to help them get that exercise or diet, or what, what sorts of things do you, you recommend?
1: Two things dramatically help insulin resistance. One is reduction of body fat mass. So if we can begin to reduce body fat mass, we can begin to improve insulin resistance. Another approach is, again, things like carb detox. If we can reduce the amount of sugar that we're burdening our our body with, particularly in a person already with insulin resistance, we can make less insulin reduce that effect. And then the other thing we use is, you know, that that is like a staple and it's probably the single most common medication I prescribe is called metformin. It came out in 1985 for diabetes. It's been studied for a long time, long-term safety data. The ironic thing about medications is the longer it's on the market and the more famous it is, the more it's used, the more bad press it gets. But it is, it's an irony because me and most doctors I know If they see that their patients are getting harmed by a medication, we stop prescribing it, generally speaking. So, the fact that it's around long enough and used widely enough to get famous enough to get a bad name on the internet is usually pretty good proof that it's actually probably pretty safe. (laughs) So, anyway, I use that a lot. I use it myself. It is a potent tool in the battle against insulin resistance because it increases interestingly, it increases what we call glucose dependent insulin secretion. So you say, wait a minute, we're trying to lower insulin secretion. Why would you want it to increase? Yeah, but it increases glucose dependent. People with insulin resistance are pumping out insulin in excessive amounts all the time, whether their glucose level is up or not. It's helping with that. It's also helping reduce the liver's production of sugar. That What I called earlier gluconeogenesis, literally just new sugar formation. It Your liver can actually make sugar and it stores it as glycogen. It actually reduces gluconeogenesis, that process. So you're not making as much endogenous or internal blood sugar. So try to attack it from a few different directions. And I see fantastic results with that.
0: One of the things that helped me was the combination of changing my diet and and exercise. Uh, type two diabetes runs in my family. My my on my dad's side, my grandmother had it, my dad has it right now, type two. And I was my, my A one C levels were, you know, every annual physical. It was it was creeping up and he's like, Hey, you might want to start thinking about getting on metformin. And I was like, Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Is there anything else I can do? And I was sort of pre diabetic. And so okay. I started, to, I just read and read and read and read. I was, I was a biology major in college. So I can weave through some of the basic scientific articles and, and literature on, on this stuff. And so I said, well, let me, let me try this out. I'm going to try making a, a big decision in my life and sort of giving up sugar as a regular thing, like desserts after meals. Bye, goodbye, farewell, say la vie. And uh, trying to get more lean, sort of decreasing my own body fat and through exercise and really not just sort of, you know, just sort of cardio. So actually lifting weights and taking that, that attack. And in fact, I, I went so far as I, I became a vegan for a while just as, as an experiment. And when I was a vegan, A1C levels plummeted. I mean, they went they went weight. I lost a ton of weight. It was great. For quite, for quite some time. I've been able to sort of maintain the sort of normal A1C levels just by making some adjustments in my activity level, but also in my diet. I recently saw a video, and I can't remember, there's a, a medical doctor in California who's been talking about this probably 25 years, the transition in the American diet from butter and lard to the... the and I remember this as a kid, the sort of neurotic panic about heart disease and cholesterol. And I remember us moving from butter and lard to margarine and, you know, Crisco and this emphasis on vegetable oils and, and seed oils. And and one of the things that I've recently seen is this conversation about the contribution that seed oils have to obesity prevalence. And that things like butter and lard and animal fat tallow and things like that beef fat those actually aren't bad for you and in fact some of the things i've read is that we often blame animal fat for the things that sugar and carbs are actually doing to us and added on to that is the introduction of all these seed oils and linoleic acid and and those effects on us is that a part of your practice to sort of talk about the role of seed oils? You try to get people off of, of vegetable oils and canola oil and, and things like that. Is, is that something you talk about as well?
1: Well, I'll give you a disclaimer. I, uh, the whole seed oil debate ha- is actually relatively new to me too. As best I can tell, that has not yet crawled its way into mainstream obesity care and something that we're told, hey, really be concerned about that. I'm not saying we don't need to be. I'm saying I don't think it's prime time yet. I don't think we've gotten there. But some reputable people, people that I've listened to and and read, have some concerns about it, and I'm not dismissing those concerns at all. I Also, to speak to the butter and animal fats, I want to have a little bit of a nuanced or balanced approach to those because we do know for years there is association between Increased intake of saturated fatty acids and cardiovascular disease association. But like we beat our students over the head about is association is not causation. And another study came out. I wish I had the title of it here to read to you, but it it basically said it just came out September of this year. And some is saturated fatty acids, SFA's really, you know, the boogeyman kind of thing? Is it? we keep throwing shade on it and for years i've seen little articles pop up here and there saying yeah yeah you know what though we don't have any studies that really draw a cause and effect line between them are they an innocent bystander perhaps they are and there is some evidence that that may be the case so when i'm talking just the lecture i gave wednesday uh, afternoon med students and i don't want the residents to think in terms of you know if somebody is eating saturated fatty acids in their diet Ask them, don't beat them over the head about it, but ask them, you know, until we know more, keep it moderate. Seed oils, kind of a similar thing, except I don't even think you need to do that because I think there's a couple, some oils that are really good and will serve that purpose without eating seed oils at all. Olive oil and avocado oil. And I pretty much, I mean, if you can do that, you can avoid the whole risk. So I think, I really think that in that case, the Mediterranean diet is pretty good. I don't think it's the best diet, dietary plan, because I think the best dietary plan is, is probably the better parts of Mediterranean, keto, paleo, yeah, the better parts of each of those. And I think all of them can be done in a way that's not healthy. Vegan, you were a vegan for a while. And so you probably know as well as I do that vegan diet is not necessarily a healthy diet. There's a lot of things that don't have animal products in it that are not helpful or healthy. So it's really about, not about pushing a particular dietary plan, it's about helping the person meet them a little bit closer to where they're at, not demanding that they come over here, but educating them and encouraging them to uh, find a way to mostly get healthy things in.
0: One of the challenges with, with these studies, as as you know, is is controlling for certain variables, right? you know, these sorts of studies, people self-report on what they're eating. And sometimes the studies don't always record everything they're eating. It's not that they're eating saturated fat, they're eating saturated fat and sugar and other things. That's exactly right. right. And made those things worse, right? And so, so much of this discussion, unfortunately, and and the data, I think is so confusing because we can't control for the right variables to get the right data to see the, those sort of, Correlations to make good prognosis. Yeah, nutrition research,
1: yeah. Nutrition research is notoriously difficult, and so if you see one study relative to nutrition, hold your horses and wait, and let's let's see two or three or ten more and before we can start saying, "All right, yeah, yeah, I think let's do a meta-analysis and see if if it still holds up." Because nutrition research is notoriously difficult uh, research yeah. control. You're exactly right.
0: And it's so frustrating because, you know, on Tuesday, you'll see one study, right? That says one thing. And then on Thursday, the next week, you see something else that says the exact opposite. And and so it's really difficult. I want to shift gears here and and talk about the ways in which sort of Christians eat, because one of the things that should sort of mark a Christian life is self-discipline and self-control and the managing of the passions, as we say in the Christian tradition, the appetite, you might call it cravings. And I don't know, I've never walked in a church in America and not seen extreme levels. I mean, I mean, extreme levels of people who were, who were overweight. And one of the things I'm seeing, I've, I've sort of seen increase over the years as a college professor is freshmen who were arriving on campus obese. Like I've seen that increase anecdotally since I've been at the King's College for the last 13 years. It's been alarming. I think that the freshman 15 isn't necessarily true anymore. The 15, they arrive already with the 15 or the 30 or the 45. And I'm wondering if, if you can help us sort of think about what should churches do with their food? And how should Christians be thinking about their own food consumption on the one hand as a spiritual practice in their families? And then secondly, when we get together in community to do community meals and church events and things like that, because if we take what you just said seriously earlier, we have to change everything about what we do, both at home and also in our religious life. There
1: is, I think, in our attempt In in churches to be loving. I think fellowship with other believers in the church is an endeavor to be loving. And in our attempt to be loving, we're actually being unloving. And the reason I, I, I say that is, have you ever had poison ivy? Let's say you have a patch of poison ivy on your arm, and it's really itching. And you don't want to scratch it. You're Friend tells you not to scratch it, yet you find yourself scratching it once in a while anyway. Now, imagine this friend, which hopefully nobody would do this, but but imagine this friend comes over and says, hey, what are you doing scratching that? You know you're not supposed to scratch that rash. Yeah, yeah, no, I know I can't help it. And they say, what do you mean? Have some self-control. Have some self-discipline. Have some self-respect. What's the matter with you? You don't see me scratching. You say, well, wait, you don't have poison ivy. Okay, so what does that have to do with obesity? Everything. And to tell you how it connects there, I'm going to give you another illustration. You're in a swimming pool and you have a beach ball. And naturally, not being touched, the beach ball is sitting on the surface of the water. That is normal and natural. That's where that beach ball is at rest. You want it to go underwater. You push it down and you hold it underwater. How long does it stay underwater? Well, only as long as you hold it there. You would be pretty shocked if you're holding it underwater, you let go and it stayed there. It's going to come back up. Why? Because that is precisely where it belongs. That's where it's at rest. Now, people with obesity, and the reason we can confidently say this meets all the criteria and then some of a disease is people with obesity have. A disrupted set point in this little area of the hypothalamus called the arcuate nucleus, and within that arcuate nucleus, you have what we are now calling the energy regulatory system. It is, and I can we could break it down even further. There's two little neurons in there, but this is not a medical talk, so I won't go that far. But the interplay between these two little parts of that part of the hypothalamus give signals for hunger or satiety and the hunger and satiety are actually aren't the same thing. You can be full as a tick and not be satiated. Hence the phrase, there's always room for dessert. So imagine another part of the hypothalamus controls your temperature. The reason you start shivering when your core temperature starts going down is because that part of the hypothalamus knows the temperature of your blood all the time because the blood's flowing through there. When it's starting to go down, it's triggering physiologic things to occur. So you shiver, but you also make conscious decisions that you don't really decide to do, but they are things you do. Like you start doing this. You didn't plan to do that at 4.30 this afternoon. You know, you just did it. You reach down, grab a cover in the middle of the night, three o'clock, you wake up just enough to pull it up on you because you're getting cold. So those are things that you're physically doing that do you have control over it? Oh, okay. Maybe some. Similarly, if you have this much body fat on you, and your body fat set point in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus is here, I call it the itch. Those little parts of the brain are going to say, "Hey, we need more energy." And when we get the energy, I don't want you wasting it in your bowel movement, and I don't want you to wasting it by creating a bunch of extra heat. And you know what? I also don't want you wasting it going outside for a walk. So when you get off work, go lay down. And we tell people with obesity in our culture that they're fat, lazy slobs. And I know a whole lot of skinny, lazy slobs. That is not the cause of the problem. Now I'll tell you, if you are overweight and you are lazy and that's throwing gas on the fire, it didn't cause the fire. So bringing that back to the church, why is it unloving? Well, it's not unloving on purpose. It's ignorance. We have a bunch of heavy people in our churches and we invite them to this potluck and they kind of feel ashamed if they don't show up, but they show up and there's not a thing there that's going to help them. In fact, I'll tell you, I love an apple fritter. If I go out in the kitchen right now and there's an apple fritter, I will eat that thing. Is it because I'm undisciplined? Maybe you can accuse me of that if you want but it's there. If it wasn't there, I probably wouldn't have craved it. So I don't have it in the house. We don't have cereal in the house. We don't have potatoes and pasta in the house and I'm an Irish and my wife's Italian. Now we occasionally do like Christmas, we're going to have some mashed potatoes because this Irish boy wants some mashed potatoes, but it's not normal. And it's not about never having a donut again or never having the potato again. It's about protecting yourself from the things you know, that aren't helpful for you. And then you being in control of it instead of it being in control of you. And churches could help with that if they understood it. I've, I haven't have done it yet, but I've offered, nobody's taken me up on the offer, to teach at our church about this. I'll probably be able to do it at some point. But it is a partly a church problem, but it's a societal problem. And maybe the church has higher, if you were to do stats on the average churchgoer, maybe the stats are higher there. I haven't done that.
0: What's really interesting, if if you look at the obesity prevalence map in the U.S., you tend to find higher rates of obesity in the so-called Bible Belt. Mid-Atlantic, the sort of Mid-South and Deep South, you tend to find lower rates of obesity in the places that are what we would consider unchurched. Really, really fascinating. And, you know, I I grew up in the South, I I grew up in Atlanta, and it's a part of, you know, church culture, especially black church culture, to eat well and eat a lot. We talk about eating well all the time.
1: If we're meeting, we're eating.
0: Absolutely, right. And food, right, there's a sacramental part of that. We see that in Corinthians, right? So it's not that food is bad, but we may be inadvertently undermining our own, to be more technical, insulin resistance by feeding each other things that out of ignorance, I think we may not be aware of, it's actually hurting us and our children instead of instead of helping. One of my frustrations is that a lot of churches are full of medical professionals who have this sort of information and data. And like you said, they don't ever get invited to talk about it. And I think that's one of the ways I think the churches really fail at using the expertise of, of its members beyond the sort of pastoral professional class to make contributions to people living well and and be more godly with respect to their bodies. I, th- I think God most definitely wants us to, to think spiritually and theologically about our bodies. And the sort of content you're bringing right now is a way to for us to be good stewards of the creation in particular, to be good stewards of our, of our own bodies. And I'm wondering, So what's a church supposed to do? I mean, they've been doing this for years. It's now a habit and a pattern, you know, Sunday mornings, a coffee hour, children's ministry, youth ministry. What would would you recommend a church do? Because every single church kind of youth children event that I've seen, and you show up, it's a long line of soda with high fructose, corn syrup that blocks that mechanism you talked about earlier. Processed snacks, chips drenched in all sorts of, of oils and things that aren't good for you, high-sodium snacks, high-sugar snacks, right, cakes and cookies. And and we think, oh, this is a way to be loving and inviting and hospitable to the kids. But what should they do now? You know, this sort of information is out. What kinds of things should they be serving the children and and youth and and each other at church events?
1: Well, I think we're not going to – Make us significant inroads at church until we can make significant inroads at home. Because the church is made up of a bunch of people that have a home. So if we're expecting, I'm not saying the church shouldn't be an influence and shouldn't endeavor. And one way we maybe can do that is start reducing the entertainment aspect of church. I mean, I mean, are you really going to church to be entertained? Are you really going to church to you can eat the chips and the macaroni and cheese and all you can eat that at home? So you know, maybe that's part of it. And in some cases, maybe we're filling our churches with people that aren't really church people. They just sit there. Perhaps that's one issue. Another is if we wanted to start making inroads, let's start introducing, for instance, on my desk. Got it from nuts.com. I'm not getting paid by them, but this vegetable protein mix. And it's got some you now got some starch in it because like chickpeas and the, the broad beans in it have some starch in it. But now are the kids going to eat it? I don't know. Well, the kids won't eat that and they'll go crazy. Um, maybe they will. That's why it's really got to start at home. Another thing we can do with at these potlucks, when we're doing sign-up sheets. Have a sign-up sheet that specifically has, like, keto dish, paleo dish, Mediterranean dish, and have somebody, because what I try, we don't do this as well as, as we should or could, but we have done this uh, in my family where we take something that is maybe not going to be the biggest hit on the table, but it's a healthy option for people. You know, people find out who did that, they thank you for it. They're like, I'm trying to avoid that stuff too, and there's just never anything there. Thanks for bringing that. You know, I don't know that anytime soon until we get the whole culture change, which is going to take generation, a couple generations probably. But it's going to happen, I think. That we're going to get rid of everything that would be tempting to us. I love some baked macaroni and cheese, and if it's there, I'm really tempted to get it. Sometimes I have the the hotspot, have to pass it up. Sometimes I'm I don't, and I get a little bit, but. Having other options, if by the time I get to the baked macaroni and cheese, my plate's nearly full, up, thats <laughs> I probably won't get any. So I think we can kind of start there. A lot of women feel like they always have to put on a show when they're, and guys too, when they're bringing something to put on the potluck table.
0: One of the things that I've seen that's a bit troubling, particularly in a lot of men's ministry is a celebration of gluttony, right? You sort of men getting together. We're going to really eat a lot of meat today, like a lot of this and that. And they sort of yeah. you know, boast about the quantity of, of their food as if, as if somehow it's spiritually advantageous and complimentary to consume a ridiculous amount of food that you actually, actually don't need. I'm wondering as a, as a doctor, as a father, how have you guys made decisions about these things for your own family? I mean, did you when your kids were little, were you feeding them the sort of you sort of mentioned paleo diet and keto diet? Has your family had to transition or were you always like that? What have, what kinds of things have, have you done in your in your own family to to make adjustments in the diet? You, you mentioned earlier, right, that you you were a beast yourself. And so I'm, I'm assuming that in order for you to reduce your own weight, you had to get the whole family involved. It wasn't it wasn't just you. So how have you sort of worked that through with your whole family?
1: It's rare that somebody can do it by themselves. It's a family intervention, and my patients that have the toughest time are the patients that don't get support from their family. Now they'll say they do, and their spouse or, or say they support them, but you know with words. But when it comes to inconveniencing them they're not so what we did you can ask Emma what we did when she was about 6 I think 5 or 6 is when I started kind of going through this transition myself and changing things in the house we one day just took a big bag and went through the house and the sodas went the potatoes went the pasta went the sugar went the flour went the got rid of it and now all of it didn't stay gone Over time, you kind of settle into what a new normal for you is. But until you do that, and I encourage my patients to do that, and it is hard to do. But what's harder is trying to learn to eat healthy when the unhealthy things you like are staring you in the face. That's harder. I tell people, you know, you lock your door at night before you go to bed because you know you're not going to keep the bad guy out if he really wants to get in. But you don't want to make it convenient for him. Yet yeah, we go to the store, we purchase these things, bring them in the house and lock them in the house with us. We want to get healthy, but we keep the unhealthy things at arm's reach. I've even had people say, well, I keep this there just in case. I'm, just in case of what? Just in case you lose a couple of pounds. And it forces you to begin to learn how to live a life without it. And not only how to live a life without some of those things, but how to actually enjoy living a life without those things. Now, I said earlier, and I say to my patients all the time, my goal is not that you never have pasta. My wife and I recently, last month, went on the longest vacation we've ever done. It was kind of our honeymoon because we were too poor to have a honeymoon. When we got married 29 years, 28 and a half years ago, we went to Rome and tell me I didn't eat some pasta. It was off the chain. And I'm not saying I'm not gonna have pasta. I'm not saying I'm not gonna have the donut. I'm saying you got to give yourself a chance to learn to live without them before you can trust having them.
0: And there's there's also a, a dopamine response as well, right? I, I think no there's, there's, there's there's an association there. You have to give your brain an opportunity to have a dopamine reset as well so that you get a dopamine hit from eating normal things as opposed right. to the donut. You get a dopamine hit from like a strawberry or like a blueberry and you have to give yourself a chance to do that and you can't do that like you said right if it's in the house and so maybe the the place to start with these things is is at home if there's someone in your family who's struggling with being overweight you can't expect that person to make a lot of progress unless everybody is in on it and really is willing to sacrifice and be disciplined together for the sake of, of the person who's, who's struggling. Maybe that's the starting point. I think you're right. I never really thought about it this way that, that it starts at home and then it's sort of the next, then it sort of expands itself into church life.
1: Imagine if you had hundred families in your church and 30 of them lived healthy. What do you think that would do to your potlucks? So yeah, I, I do think it's a societal thing. It's a cultural thing. I had a, a patient I was seeing last week, her husband came with her at the first visit. So they were new patients together. Well, he didn't come back the second visit and she did. And and she said, it's because he, he told her, I don't believe in not enjoying life. And I said, you know, I don't totally disagree with that. I don't believe in that either. I'm actually hoping you can enjoy life more just differently. I'm not trying to change. I tell people, you know, obesity is not a weight problem. It's a want problem. If we can help you change what it is you want, then you no longer don't want it. You can enjoy living and eating like that.
0: So as we wrap up here, what sorts of things would you recommend for parents, for church leaders, for individuals who want to really take control of their eating decisions and to make a transition and to... You know from this day forward they want to they want to do something new what what sorts of things would you recommend hey if you're a parent and you know you and your husband are both a a bit overweight you've got the dad bod right you want to make some changes your children's diet is not great i just don't think we can blame a lot of kids for snacking too much and drinking too much soda if it's actually in the house
1: that's right. You're exactly
0: right. Right. I mean, it's it's just to me, it's shaming them and blaming them for the decisions of of adults and giving and making it their responsibility to have control over things they don't even purchase. What should parents do? What can churches do? I mean, how would you just sort of give a couple of tips or, or advice to help families think about next steps?
1: You talk about shaming the kids when they're kids. Then when they're adults We shame them because they're supposed to be able, don't you know, on their 18th birthday, flip a switch and suddenly relinquish everything that they've been trained to do. And not only been trained to do, but just inherently feel is normal. They've been habituated. Yeah. And we have a a whole culture, few generations of adults that I won't go down that rabbit trail anyway. So, how to get started? One, be a parent. I have a lot of parents that. Either, you know, the parents, the patient, and they will actually blame their kids for having the unhealthy foods in the house. Well, so and so wants this, or I have this 13-year-old. And so I'll ask them, who's the parent? Isn't it your job to model for them and not let them think that this is normal? And my wife and I were convicted about that years ago when I was talking about that. Now, my kids started out in a house with unhealthy food that was probably fairly typical of the wider american culture and so it was a transition and it wasn't easy i remember emma my youngest daughter coming up to me when she was tiny and just looking at me dead in the eye and saying daddy i want chips and i looked at her and i said get a job then you can get some chips so kids are resilient and they're malleable you get it out of the house though they're actually honestly they're much like men a man will whine and complain because they have their preferences, but they don't want to buy it and cook it themselves. If the wife is the shopper and the cooker, they're going to eat what you put on the table. They might fuss about it a little bit, but kids will get used to it. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to retrain what normal looks and feels like to them. Uh, And that's really a a lot of my practices. I actually have a ridiculous number of people in their 70s and 80s radically changing their life. I have one guy, he hand makes guitars and had to stop because he couldn't get up the stairs to his shop. Now he's making guitars again. And he made me one. <laughs> so I think that's a good place to start is modeling, not having it in the house. And I'm not saying don't have it. If you want to take kids out once in a while, get some ice cream, go do it, make an event of it, but make your home a food safe place, particularly for those who have metabolic diseases.
0: I think it's really important that it's framed that way for some people in terms of it being a a disease i think some people will struggle with admitting that they have a disease but i think if you look really closely at the biochemical mechanisms of how how and why we overeat and the dopamine relationships there and, and so many other correlations the first step might be admitting that right i'm sick I need to get some help. I need my family to help me get some help, or we need to help our kids get some help. And maybe our church can help us also get some help. Maybe we can all help each other on this. And I think it's just a really important witness publicly for the church and Christians to be able to show a world that we are also good stewards of our bodies and that God oh. actually cares about that, that that our our spiritual life is is embodied. I mean we there's a purity culture about our sexuality. There is not a purity culture about our diet. Uh, there's not a, a purity culture about our food. And maybe we need we need to, to elevate that and, and, and raise our own consciousness about those things. One of the things that I mentioned in an earlier podcast is I had a, a Jewish Christian told me that, that one of the reasons Christians struggle with evangelism in Israel is that if they see an overrate Christian, they really doubt the veracity of the faith because a faith that that can't change how a person consumes food must not be that powerful um, wow. to, to sort of change person. so when they see someone, a Christian evangelizing, it raises questions about whether or not... Th- th- Christianity is, is actually, he, he told me this and I, it kind of blew my mind, but he said, yeah, in Israel, he said that, you know, you have these overweight pastors and, and missionaries preaching the gospel and, and evangelizing and their mere presence, their obesity actually undermines their witness. I've just been concerned as I see, it's really interesting that we have all these prayer requests for people who are sick, right? Hypertension, type 2 diabetes, like cancers that you mentioned. And a lot of these ailments and diseases are a consequence of our behaviors. Right. And maybe if we change our behaviors, we would have less health-related prayer requests. There's a direct connection there. So this is a lot to talk about. Yeah, go
1: ahead. And I should, and I've said this before, but I want to kind of dovetail off what you just said about If changing our behaviors, you're right. There are behaviors involved with obesity. We don't go far enough though. And we haven't for years in science, we've failed. One thing science is never supposed to do is stop asking why. Yet when somebody's overweight, and even if we can look at that person and demonstrate that they eat way too much and they eat way too much of the wrong stuff and you've got it recorded. Why? Why does a person lay down in front of an oncoming train? Well, they're suicidal, right? Well, why are these people? What's instigating that? Is it always because of sheer gluttony and hedonism? I mean, I'm sure that exists, no question, but is it always? And how often is it they have an itch that they can't not scratch? So it's really difficult because there's both, there's all the extremes and everything in between there. But I try to treat every patient as if they are the one and they'll prove themselves out over time to be the other.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's really, really important to just reiterate that point in terms of asking the why question. Uh, you know, some people, it may be gluttony, right? It may be overeating. But as I said earlier, sometimes people are just alleviating discomfort, right? It could be a way to manage stress, to manage anxiety, to manage depression and loneliness, right the lack of of connection sometimes. So there there are lots of contributing factors that might make someone go to food uh, as a way to feel better. We don't like to feel bad. And if there's a, a package of Oreos and a glass of milk that will alleviate my anxiety, depression at the moment, I'm definitely going to reach for it and take it right. and that'll be after i had a big bowl of, of french fries uh, coated in salt preferably made and fried in duck fat dr michael jones thank you so much for joining me on the anthony bradley Show to talk about obesity and being overweight and some of the issues there he practices a family medicine in lynchburg virginia and delighted to have you on our show today
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good talking to
0: you. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on The Anthony Bradley Show.